Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk and Instead of skim, why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing, so we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I demanded to see my dad and he said, you can't see him. And I said, well, I want to see him. He's my dad. So I've got every right to see him. And I was very angry and, and irrational to the point that I actually grabbed his collar and I was forceful. And I said, I said, take me to my dad. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to go see him. You're not going to take me to him. He grabbed me firmly and he said, Listen, mate, I suggest you control yourself and calm down, go for a walk, because if you continue to behave like this, 
I will have you arrested. And that sort of, you know, brought me back because I thought, oh, shit, I can't go to prison. Like, what about my sisters? Our guest today on Australian True Crime is Aman Abrimzadeh. He's a successful businessman from Adelaide, a member of that city's council and a member of the Order of Australia. Aman's a father, a husband and a brother, and he's an ambassador for Our Watch. Aman is a high achiever by anyone's standards, except possibly those of his own father. As you'll come to learn, Aman grew up in a home ruled by fear. And I must warn you that this will likely be a triggering conversation for anyone with experience of family violence. Arman's storytelling is vivid, and as much as every family is different, he manages to capture so many ways in which his family's story is all too common. It's a stark warning to every one of us. This is a two-part special, and we begin this first part by talking about the background of Arman's family and dispelling a few misconceptions I had about their culture. Life was fun. Life was great. Uh, I had just finished year five. The way schooling works in Iran is that you've got primary school from year one to year five. Then you have uh, year six, seven, eight. That's middle school. So you go to a different school. And then you've got senior school or high school, years nine to 12. I just finished primary school. The way schooling works there is that you essentially have nine months of school, no terms, no breaks, no nothing. It's nine months of school. We have six-day weeks, so Friday is your only weekend. And once school finished, we were sort of um, talking to some friends, talking to some neighbours in terms of where would be a good school for me to go to. And then after a few weeks, it all died down and I didn't hear anything. And I thought, hmm, what's going on? <laughs> Am I going to school next year or not? And I guess we had three months, so I thought maybe they want a bit of a break. Uh, maybe in a month or so, we'll start looking at schools. But no, that wasn't the case. That didn't happen. As we got closer, we started to sort of pack up our belongings. We started to sell a whole heap of stuff, all your furniture, everything, essentially, from your TV to your vacuum cleaner to yeah, just about everything. We sold all of that off, and then I started to sort of connect the dots and think, ah, uh, we're, we're getting ready to move. Geopolitically, there wasn't anything new happening in the region, but what essentially happened was my dad's got a big family here uh, in Adelaide. Uh, my mom doesn't have any family here, uh, but the stories and um, the feedback from my dad's family here in Adelaide essentially motivated my parents to move here. You know, and, and living in both countries, I can see that we've got better education, we've got a better health system, we've got better opportunities. Uh, whereas over in Iran, if you're not part of a clique or if you don't know someone powerful or influential, chances of getting a good job is probably harder. And uh, so, yeah, my parents really thought this through and I count my lucky stars every day that we actually made that move. And my parents made a very difficult, but a, but a, but a great decision for us. They essentially moved for their kids. Especially good news for your sister, I would think. Yes, for, yeah, for both sisters, but yeah, particularly for the younger sister, because uh, when we came here and when she was born, she was automatically an Australian citizen. What about the differences in gender politics between Iran and Australia? Like, was your mum in hijab here in Australia? A lot of women do continue mm. with that mm. tradition. But mm. in Iran, that's a law, right? What are the police called? The, the police who... Oh, police? the morality police. Morality police. There's morality police yes. in Iran whose job it is to enforce those rules and other mm -hmm. rules. Tell mm -hmm. us about the morality police. 
Oh, the morality police. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, uh, so, no, I, I, to, to answer your question, as soon as we got out of the country, we, we made a kind of a slow transition because we uh, left Iran. We came over to Malaysia. We stayed in Kuala Lumpur for, uh, I think, about four or five days. Malaysia is an Islamic country, but they don't necessarily have those laws in place where women have to cover their hair. It's, it's optional for them. And so, uh, yeah, my mum coming out of uh, Iran thought, ah, well, this is relaxed. So I think she went, and I remember this, she went through a bit of a phase in Malaysia where she lifted her scarf off of her head and it was essentially resting on her shoulders. So it was really covering her, her shoulders and, and the back of her hair. And, uh, and that was for a few days. Uh, and then once we came over to Adelaide, the scarf completely came off. And I thought, oh, that's actually a nice way to transition out of it. <laughs> How did your dad cope with this change in culture and with you with his wife you know taking the scarf off within days because he wasn't he wasn't religious he didn't have any sort of you know comment or feedback on it and i guess you know yeah it just comes down to whether if whether if it's an important cultural element for you and your family or whether if you know if the family is religious or not but for us we yeah we weren't um, overly religious and, and and if anything school in iran was probably the most religious thing that uh, that I experienced because when I when I came home I didn't necessarily have to pray but when I was at school no you you go to school and you pray so I was just I guess what I was trying to get at is did your dad because we're heading towards a place where your dad became violent mm-hmm. did he become violent was it always a factor in your family or was it the the cultural differences that freaked him out how did this mm. come about no, my dad was always violent regardless of where we were you know my earliest childhood memories are uh, a violent ones the way he thought the family worked was i can probably best explain it if i refer to an organizational chart where you essentially have the ceo at the very top and then you have everyone else underneath them uh, that's how my dad ran the family home please pardon my ignorance is that a cultural thing is that was that a common thing uh... in in your culture in Iran? Not really, no. So you would probably... I sort of see it from here as like, oh, well, that there are, you know, um, morality police and that women can go to jail for this and that and they can't drive and all that kind of stuff. Or can oh, no, they, they, know, they, they can drive in, in Iran and they can, they okay. can you okay. know, go to parliament, uh, they can they can vote. So, okay. so yeah, Iran's probably a li- little, uh, li- little bit different to some of the other countries in the region, but that would essentially come down to uh, the family themselves. So we had we had uh, um, you know family friends that were um, uh, pretty flexible in their approach. So those gender roles aren't necessarily embedded in every family. No, no, not not in every family. No. So certain families, if they're um, I guess you know more traditional, or if there are as I said, if there is you know a cultural element or a, or a religious element, then then yes. But otherwise. Um, no, and the thing is, you know, when, when we came to to Adelaide, you know, we sort of looked around at the uh, at both the Afghan community and the Iranian community because my dad is Afghan, but my mum's uh, Iranian, and we we spend most of our um, our lives in Iran. When you looked at both communities here in Adelaide, you would essentially come across the same sort of thing where you have certain families that uh, essentially govern in that way, where you essentially have the father of the of the house uh, as the head of the household, but other families in the community look at things differently. And so, yeah, the family dynamics completely differ. Tell us about how that manifested, how that, that looked on a daily basis. And was he a disciplinarian with your mum as well? 
Mm. Yeah, so um, everyone got disciplined at home. That's uh, that, that's the way things went. And it could be anything. It could be a bad report card. And, you know, f- for me, I sometimes uh, wasn't the best student, so I would come home with a bad report card. And so uh, there would be consequences for that. And he would, uh, there were his words. He would essentially warn me and tell me that these grades uh, are not to be brought uh, home in the future. And if they are, there will be consequences for them. If, if my mum talked back, if she stood up for herself, if she said anything, it would usually end up with my dad yelling at her or, uh, or depending on the argument, the tension would essentially build. And that tension would only break when my dad would physically abuse uh, my mum. And that was, that was the normal thing in our household. And because we were, we were a part of it as kids, me and my older sister, we witnessed it, um, we experienced it in, in, in some cases, we didn't know any better, we never questioned it. Yeah, you, because you think that that's normal and it happens in everyone's house when you're little. Yeah. Yep, yep, and, and you sort of think that, well, every family has their ups and downs, every family has their uh, happy moments and not so happy moments, and so uh, uh, we thought, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's just normal, that's just how, uh, how it is. So we never questioned it. I guess, you know, the way we were raised, you don't uh, um, disrespect anyone other than you. You don't talk back, particularly if it's your parents. You you know you you respect them and uh, you essentially do as you're told. Yeah, it was only until my teenage years that I started to uh, you know as uh, as my dad described it, I started to interfere when they would have fights. I remember I probably would have been uh, I don't know maybe fifteen or sixteen, but. The good thing about me at that time was essentially when I sort of hit my teenage years, when I was maybe about 13 or 14, I started to, uh, to outgrow my dad, so I was taller than him. And that's when I started to sort of realize that what was happening at home isn't the normal thing. And so uh, I would essentially stand between my parents and I would uh, try and stop my dad from hitting my mum. And that became the normal thing. It's a common story for men, for boys in family violence, isn't it? And I don't think we really talk about that enough. We talk a lot about the violence between men and women, but there are children involved and oftentimes boys bear the brunt of a lot of violence because they're protective of their mums. And as you say, as they start to get bigger, naturally the the bully in the house starts to get threatened. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, was, uh, uh, you know, for me, I guess I had the advantage of, uh, of of size. For my older sister, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And I, I remember um, witnessing many occasions where if I didn't get to the fight early enough, I remember uh, my older sister trying to protect my mum and uh, my dad would essentially just you know, grab her, um, slap her around a few times and throw her to the side of the room and go to my mum. Whereas uh, with me, I would, uh, sure, I would cop a few slaps, punches, kicks, but I would still be able to hold my ground and, and, and at least, you know, hold my mum behind me so that she wasn't, uh, she wasn't hurt in the fight. That was a family dynamic and that became the normal thing in our family home. And I think my dad kind of realised that and so he became a little, bit more, uh, a little bit more strategic, if I can put it that way, because then physical assaults would happen when my older sister and I went around. And so, you know, we would come home and my mum would have a bruised face or, or something would happen and, and or we'll, we, would, we would get told a story. And the thing is, you, you realise that something has happened even if you weren't told anything because what uh, those fights ended up doing is that they would 
bring about some awkwardness. And you, you imagine if a family sitting together, all of a sudden a fight would happen. What do you do after the fight? You can't just pick up where you left off. You can't just go back to the, to the dinner table. You can't just go back to sitting down on the couch and watch TV. So there would be this, this awkwardness where my dad would end up going to, um, uh, going to his bedroom or, or even in some cases where, where the fight was um, severe, he would pick up his jacket, get his keys and, and you know, leave the house. Sometimes for a few hours, sometimes for a couple of days. That was part of the, the, the family dynamic. There must have been a sense of dread about when he was going to come back. Yeah, yeah, because he would he would he would bring that awkwardness back with him. But then you know, again, because we had done it over and over again, we would essentially get to a point where he would come back home, and you would put up with the awkwardness for for a few hours, and then things would just get normal again. Did he do that thing that people do sometimes, where then did he try to sort of spark up conversations like nothing happened? How did he? sort of react after he'd had one of his blow-ups and he'd let off steam and he'd got it out of his system, whatever he, you know, wanted to yeah. do. How did he try to get things back to normal, you know, as whatever normal is? <sighs> did he try to make up with people? Did he apologise? No, he- no, 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 no. There was right. no apology. There was no honeymoon phase. There was no, there was none, none of that. It was essentially, um, and, and it goes back to his views of the family home. No, no, it was uh, it was it was the man of the house. It was the head of the house. So uh, he was disciplining us. That was uh, that was that was his his view of the world. He would try and strike up conversations, and I guess uh, again, you know, given how my sisters and I were raised, we just did not have it in us to reject it or or uh, talk back to him or do anything because uh, we grew up in a, in a very strict house. So uh, if if you were served food, you would eat it regardless of what it is. If, uh, if an adult tells you something, you, you do as you're told. You would always be the first person to say hello because that's a very respectful thing. It's always the, the younger person saying hello first. So, yeah, it was, you know, those little things were essentially, we, we were programmed in, in a particular way. And it wasn't until my teenage years when I started to see how my friends' families were behaving I went over to, to friends' places for dinner. I had sleepovers, and I would watch how uh, how their families would behave, and I would, you know, I would think about it. I would compare. I'll tell you a funny story. I had never witnessed affection in in our family home. I may have been twelve years old. Uh, I went over to a friend of mine. Um, I went over to his house. We had dinner. After dinner, his dad got up and and started to clear the plates, and I looked at that and I thought. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I would have thought the same thing. Yeah. By the yeah. way, yeah. I thought, what? Um, and uh, <laughs> anyway, they, they packed up the table as, as a family. Everyone helped, uh, but it, but um, his dad was essentially uh, leading the charge. Uh, and then his dad came over to uh, his mum, gave her a kiss on the cheek, and said, "Thanks for dinner." And I saw that kiss, and I thought, "Oh my god, that is disgusting." That, that was the first thought that, was the, that, that went through my head because I had never seen affection. I had never seen, not once did my dad come over to my mum, kiss her, hug her, say thank you, say I love you, anything like that. I had not witnessed anything like that. And so, uh, you know, my uh, initial and, and honest reaction was I was disgusted. I thought, oh, this, this doesn't sit right with me. 
Well, we got to a point where uh, this violence was sort of happening on a, on a daily basis at home. There was always a, a fight or an argument happening in the in the family home, and we got to a point where an argument broke out. And I, and I remember this uh, that, that night. I was uh, I was sleeping my uh, in my bedroom, and my bedroom back then, and, and I loved my my bedroom there because it was essentially a detached rumpus room from the house. So uh, I had my own space and. Out in the backyard, it was probably a good ten or so meters away from the, the the back of the house where the family room was. But I remember this: I was asleep, and I woke up to the sound of my mum banging on the on the sliding door, trying to wake me up, and she was screaming. And so I I woke up not knowing what time it is, not knowing what's happening. You know, when you sort of wake when you're in deep sleep and you get woken up by that sound, you're you're a bit confused. So I woke up confused, and I remember running to the sliding door, and I and I opened the door. And my mum was trying to talk to me, but as she was talking to me, she was running back to the house. She was running back to the living room. And then by that time, uh, I thought, oh, obviously, an argument's broken out. They're fighting. So I essentially kicked into the protective sound mode. So I essentially ran into the family room, and I saw my dad, who sort of had my older sister by her hair, and he was, uh, he was slapping her around. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, chances are there was an argument. A fight broke out, and my older sister, Atena, tried to intervene, try and keep my mum safe. That didn't happen, and there was an opportunity where my mum could get away and come and get me for assistance, and unfortunately, my older sister was just copying it. So I walked into that, and and then once my dad saw my mum, he sort of uh, threw my sister to the side and started to walk over. So then I, I started to uh, act as a physical barrier and, and try and talk to my dad and say, uh, and, and, you know, when, when these sorts of arguments and fights happened, I would try and talk to my dad because I was genuinely curious to know what it was that was making him so mad that he essentially wanted to, um, you know, beat the shit out of us. So on this occasion, he didn't want to have a, a bar of it, and he was trying to essentially grab, a, grab onto my mum. But I was there stopping him, essentially pushing him away and talking to him and keeping my mum behind me keeping an eye on my sister to make sure that she's okay. And uh, things got to a point where he essentially said, I've had enough, and he ran over to the kitchen, and I, I followed him into the kitchen, and he was going for the drawers where the knives were kept. So I stepped in between him and, uh, and the drawers. By then, my older sister had uh, gotten off the floor, and she was in the kitchen, and it was essentially me and my older sister wrestling my dad away uh, from where the knives were kept. We got him out of the out of the kitchen, and we essentially made sure he's in a corner in the in the living room where he couldn't arm himself with anything, because he would he would make a weapon out of anything. It could be a pen, it could be a shoe, it could be the remote control for the TV. That would be a weapon. So we made sure he couldn't grab onto anything. And when he saw that he was outnumbered and overpowered, he said, "You can't watch me twenty four seven when you least expect it." I'm going to lock you all in this house, and I'm going to burn the house down. So just imagine the person that you look up to, the person who's a role model, the person that's supposed to love you, care for you, says something along those lines. The image that I had of my dad built up in, in my head shattered at that point because I said there's no way a father would say that. And that was, that was back then when I was 21 years old. You know, here I am as a father now. It's unimaginable. 
It is. It is. It is. I could not imagine doing things to my boys that my father did to me. I could not imagine myself saying those sorts of things to my family, be it my wife or or my two sons. And feeling it. Like it sounds to me, I wasn't there, mm. but it sounds to me like he, when he said that, he felt that in his gut. He felt it and he meant it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which made it even more scary because, you know, another thing that sort of didn't sit right with me is that in the past, yeah, we've been threatened by him. We were always told that, you know, you're going to cop a beating. There will be consequences for your actions. Don't do this or I'll get back at you. Um, you know, all those sorts of threats were always there. And again, because we lived with it, we grew up with it, it became the normal thing. And the threats essentially meant that there was a beating coming your way. Yeah, it's not like he didn't follow through. He did. Yeah, correct, correct. Yes, yeah. So when something like that came out of his mouth, we as a as a family, my sisters, myself and my mum, and, and I, if I remember correctly, the incident happened on a Saturday night. We as a family kind of had a bit of a bit of an approach and a bit of a policy that no one is to be left alone with my dad. Not me, not any of my sisters, not my mum. There was always a, a two-person policy with us, if you like. And we knew that my dad was going to go to work on Monday, so he did. And that's when we started to uh, sit down and essentially plan. And we, thought, we said, right, we've got options here. We can either stay here and continue this approach in terms of making sure that there are two people present at all times when my dad is around, or we can get the hell out of here. And that's what we decided to do. If you'd like to talk to someone about abuse that's taken place in your life, no matter how long ago it happened, your GP is always a good place to start. If that's not going to work for you, you can contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or via their website 1800respect.org.au or you can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone counselling service on 13 11 14. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We got that to work. So we got four little bags ready. When I say little bags, it's a travel bag, the carry-on that you can take into into the plane with you, uh, because we knew that we we had to have enough room in the car for four bags. So it's not like we could you know pack big uh, big piece of luggage. So there's four little bags. We chuck some clothes and you know personal belongings in there, and uh, and that was it. We chucked it all in the car and we said goodbye to the family home because we knew that once we leave the family home, there is no way we're coming back, and that was a very sad thing. Yeah. You know, one of the funniest things, I think back to it now, I, maybe about three months, yeah, four, three, four months prior to the incident, I had my, 24, my 21st birthday. And for my 21st birthday, I was given a whole heap of gifts and, uh, and there, there were things that, you know, had my name engraved on it. There were things that, you know, I still wish I had, but because I couldn't pack them with me, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it was, um, <laughs> I think, I think about it now. <laughs> the 21 year old Aman was more worried about leaving those gifts behind <laughs> than anything else. Um, sure, we were worried about our lives and we were worried about how we were going to make it through. But I, I distinctly remember this as I was getting in the car and I was turning the car on and we were driving out of the driveway. And I thought, oh, no, there goes everything. Uh, and it was, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of stuff that I, uh, that, that I left behind. It wasn't just the gifts. It was everything that, wasn't, that was in my room that wasn't in my bag. And I'm, I'm sure you know, my, my sisters felt the same way. And you know what? A few months later on down the track, you know, my mum sort of, you know, opened up and, and she did brief with us. And it was, you know, it's all the, all the memories. And, and she, was, she was particularly disappointed and angry that she didn't take enough photos. Because all those photo albums are left behind. And I, and I, and I remember t- telling her, I said, you know, we'll create new memories, memories without, without dad. It's so ironic because you're sounding like people whose house burnt down. Oh. You know? Yeah. This is this is what people say when their house burnt down. I've lost all the photos, all the memories, all the you know sentimental uh, gifts. My family and people who love me had just given me my twenty first gifts, and they were beautifully engraved. And yeah, you're sounding like a family whose house, like you just lost everything. Uh, yeah, through no fault of our own. No, and it's so unnecessary, and it's just so cruel, and it's heartbreaking. And I can understand the anger as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, at, at the time, I didn't really realize how big of a deal it was. Once we left that family home, we went to the police station to report everything. We reported everything, and then from there, we uh, we sort of sat down. We thought, oh, 
what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Yeah, did you have family to go to or friends to go no, to? No, no. So we, all, all the family is on my dad's side and we knew that my dad's family uh, were going to be on his side. So we didn't approach anyone there. Um, we had some family friends, uh, but because family friends were all mutual friends, we didn't really feel comfortable approaching them. And I guess, you know, there were, there were, there were two things there. One is that, do I really feel safe going there? Because what if they talk to my dad and what if my dad shows up? There was that. But also the other thing was you don't want to put them in a difficult position. You don't want to wedge them uh, and say it's us or him. You don't want to do that either to, to those family friends. So, uh, yeah, we realized that we didn't have a place to go to. So then all these challenges started to appear, these sort of, sorts of things that we didn't really think through just because we didn't know that they were going to appear and we had no idea what to expect when we fled our family home. But once we left the police station, our family car became the family home. So homelessness was one thing. From there on, the, the, the challenges started to, to come out because we realized, oh, what are we going to do for money? We were financially dependent on my dad. I was at uni. My older sister was at uni. My younger sister was 11 years old. She was in primary school. My mum spoke broken English and she didn't have a job. So, uh, you know, in terms of finances, well, what do we do? We're going to get to a point where we'll probably have to, uh, you know, go to a, um, yeah, I, I don't even know where, you know, uh, yeah, go somewhere for groceries or something, yeah. Did you know who to ask? Did you have a GP or anyone that you felt you could go to and say, where do, where do we go? There must be services. Because this is what, 2009? Yeah. The police didn't connect us to a service there and then, but through the report, I believe we were connected to a service a few days down the track. Because what essentially happened was homelessness became an issue, money became an issue, isolation. That's probably the biggest challenge for us was that we were isolated both from our family, from our community. And because the community is so small, we didn't feel comfortable reaching out to, to anyone. And we were essentially waiting for... Uh, for the police to do their job. Um, we had applied for a restraining order. We were um, hoping that uh, we were able to connect with a, with a domestic violence service and they could uh, help us navigate the, whether if it's the restraining order process, whether if it's a family court. We had no idea. There were so many, so many questions we had and there were so many cans of worms that were opened as a result of this that we had no idea where to start. And you know, now that I look at it, we were overwhelmed. And for someone that had never uh, navigated the system, you just don't know where to start. So, uh, so yeah, chances are there, there would have been uh, assistance and there would have been services out there, but because of the lack of knowledge and also because of the lack of awareness as well. Back in 2009, we weren't talking about family and domestic violence. So, uh, um, yeah, because of a number of reasons, we fell through the gaps, but there was a, there was a safety net there which caught us, and that was the domestic violence service that we were, we were put in touch with. After days, though, after a couple of days. So did the four of you sleep in the car? Yes, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you're adults. It's not like your mum and three little kids. It's three adults and one child sleeping in the car with your four bags. The other thing is your little sister, she's a child. You know, you would have thought docs or, you know, some government agency from the school has got to go, this family has a child. We have to get emergency accommodation today. Yeah. Well, I guess for, for us, one of the things, uh, you know, that we were very, very thankful for was we, we were put in a motel. Yes. 
I should think so. Yeah, uh, and, and and I remember I think we, we stayed in a motel for a, uh, for a couple of weeks uh, until a safe house could be found, and we were allocated to that to, to that property. And what essentially happened was when we were given this motel, it was, it was the best thing that happened because all of a sudden you had a roof over your head. All of a sudden you had a bedroom and you know what you being in a car you kind of feel a little bit exposed because there's only the the car door or the or the car windscreen between you and someone else out there if you're in a motel you actually have a door you've got walls you feel a lot a lot safer especially as you guys were away from your dad for the first time in your life how did that feel to have a motel room a place with your own door to close a key he couldn't get in there he was not coming it was not yeah. his kingdom. It was just you guys were safe inside there. How did that feel? Uh, we felt relieved. It was like a um, a big weight sort of lifted off our shoulders. And I and I'll, you know that 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 feeling was one thing, but then uh, going to the safe house, you know, establishing ourselves there, we were in that safe house for probably four months. That was the best four months. Uh, that we had as a family. It was the best thing because you didn't have any arguments and fights to worry about. Uh, you know, you didn't have to be walking on eggshells, watching over your shoulder, being mindful of who you're talking to and what you're saying. You can know that you're going to go to bed and no one's going to come running in in the middle of the night and wake you up because you need to go and protect your mum. Mm -hmm. There was, at the start, I must say, at the start there was an element of fear because I thought, what if, what if he finds us? What if him and his friends or my uncles come and visit us? There is all of that what if, uh, you know, all those scenarios that you sort of, um, they go through your head. But once those fears are uh, put aside, then you can kind of relax and, and essentially enjoy life. Did he try? Did he try to find you? So the reason why we left that safe house was because, yeah, so he's, uh, so one day I was at work and um, my mom gave me a call and she sounded really distressed and she said, um, uh, they're here, they're here, I saw them, they were in a red car um, and, uh, and they drove away. I went home and I started to sort of you know, get some details from my mum because I wanted to report it because by that time we had a restraining order in place and that would have been a breach. And so I said, okay, so who was in the car? What sort of car was it? Did we see a number plate? There wasn't enough detail to go back to the police and report it, but nevertheless, I still reported it and I said, this happened um, you know, roughly at this time and I gave him some you know, a, a vague description of what had happened and who was in the car, what sort of car it was, um, no number plates, nothing like that. And um, yet the police actually said, well, we're not sure whether if we can do anything. And I said, you can't even you know, pick up the phone and have a chat with him and say, hey, uh, there's been a report that this has happened. We just want to remind you of your obligations under a restraining order that you're not allowed to contact them, harass them, stalk them, et cetera, et cetera. None of that happened, which... I was frustrated at the time, but I can understand that the law works in a particular way. And if we didn't have those details, we just didn't have those details. So we had no nothing to stand on. So uh, uh, after that incident, I think it was, I don't know, maybe two, three weeks later, because as soon as that happened, we started to look uh, for, for properties. And so we essentially got to a point where we got out of the, um, uh, the safe house. We went into a private rental. And again, that felt great because we were all of a sudden we were in a new place and we were, um, uh, you know, we felt safe and we knew that no one knew where we were living and uh, we carried on with life. When we were in the private rental, we could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. And my mum was working. 
I was uh, finishing my university and I'll probably get a full-time job. My older sister was in the same position. We were going through family court um, and at that time we were probably maybe a year or two out from uh, having the property settlement matter finalized so we could get a, a small amount of money from the family home that we once lived in. We could use that. Yeah, and we were you know, looking forward to um, you know, essentially closing that chapter because uh, th- there were conversations about, right, where can we afford to buy a house and where do we want to live and what sort of a house is it going to be? In, in South Australia, we, we had this uh, local newspaper that was free. It was called the Messenger newspaper. Yeah, we used to get our Messenger newspapers and uh, there was always uh, uh, quite a few pages dedicated to real estate at the back. So we'd always flick back to the back section and essentially look at the houses that are for sale and uh, you know what sort of price range, what sort of suburbs. That was the goal. That was, you know, we'll... You could say we were dreaming. You know, it was um, things were very, very slowly uh, happening. Things in our favour, which was which was great. And I guess you know we sort of got to a point where um, we, we felt comfortable enough to to do some normal things. What I say by that is what I mean by that is that what we used to do when we used to come home is that I would always drive around the block a couple of times to make sure that I wasn't being followed. So I would always make sure I would do that before I pull into the garage. In terms of going out to do our groceries, we would go out 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning when there was no one else at the other shops because that decreased our chances of bumping into you know, a community member or a, or a family or, or a friend that would essentially give away our um, approximate location. Um, so, uh, you know, we, were, we, we had to change things. Well, I guess, you know, we had to, uh, you know, do everyday tasks differently because we wanted to make sure that we stay safe and that we stay hidden. Came a time in, in March 2010 when my mum was uh, telling me that there is a, uh, there's a New Year event happening and her birthday happens to be on the 21st of March, which is um, the Persian New Year as well. And on this occasion, she said she's going to attend uh, the Persian New Year function uh, it was going to be a big deal. There's uh, like 300 guests in a big room, lots of people. And, and and also, I guess, you know, for us, because we were slowly getting to a point where we could see the light at the end of a tunnel, you can kind of, you know, there was a sigh of relief, like, oh, okay, we made it through. You know what? Let's enjoy life a little bit. Let's, you know, let's uh, put our guard down. Let's live a little. Yeah, let's live a little. Yeah, put your guard down and, you know, go and do what a normal person would do on any given day. Were you guys nervous? Did anyone in the family say, I don't know, it's, you know, it's a big risk to go there. Everyone's going to be there. Everyone's going to see us there. Will dad be there? Well, this is the thing. Um, because it was going to be a Persian New Year uh, event, my dad uh, in the past hadn't gone to many Persian New Year events. So uh, we knew that uh, the chance of him rolling up was very little. But I guess you know, the other thing that we sort of thought about was that if we go there, what's the safety net for us? So we've started to scenario plan a little bit. My older sister and one of her friends and my mum were going to this event. My younger sister at the time was sick. And so uh, I said, I'll stay home uh, with her. She's sick. So uh, I'll look after her while you guys go out. So we said, well, when you go there, maybe flag with a security guard. Uh, you know, there might be a family member present or there might be someone that might make you feel uncomfortable. Make sure at the end of the night, you ask the security guard to escort you, you know, to your car. So we essentially sort of uh, were scenario planning and essentially trying to uh, make sure that uh, we were as safe as possible and uh, minimize any risk. And uh, what happened was when they uh, 
when my mum, my sister, and a friend uh, rolled up at, at the convention center. Uh, it was all great uh, until the event started. When the event started, my dad attended as well. Did he just show up, or did then did someone ring him up and say? No, it was a ticketed event. Oh, okay. It was a ticketed okay. event, so so you had to have a yeah, ticket okay. in order to to be there. So he had bought a ticket, and I have no idea how, but somehow he asked to be seated with us because he had his ticket, and it, and the ticket clearly showed a table number, and that was that was their table number. And the funny thing is, I sh- I should just I should just highlight this because. Ten days prior to this event, we were in court because my dad was seeking to either remove the restraining order or to adjust it to allow him to attend functions, cultural functions. That was the argument that was put forward by uh, his defense. And I remember going to the court with my mum and uh, the police uh, prosecutor who was uh, essentially representing us said that, listen, you now we have managed to negotiate and essentially you know find a happy medium where you guys can all go to the same cultural function as long as there's no contact as long as there's no talking as long as there's no harassment no abuse nothing else if everyone goes there minding their own business it's happy days Um, as soon as one party approaches the other party that's when you're going to get into trouble and the way she explained to us she said i think this is a happy medium um, the other option is we can essentially uh, have it heard by a magistrate and there is uh, a chance that the magistrate will essentially look at this and either put in, uh, essentially vary the restraining order so that it has weaker protection for you guys or there is a chance that this uh, restraining order could be removed altogether. And I guess she's thinking, I'm talking about cultural events, I'm talking about very public events, she's probably thinking people will be safe. In this environment, I'm not asking you to be alone with this man. I'm, I'm not allowing him to come to your home, da-da-da. She's thinking this will be a safe environment. Yep. And uh, I guess for us, uh, yeah, we kind of, you know, analysed all of that and, and thought... Persian New Year at the Adelaide Convention Centre. With 300 other witnesses, with 300 other, uh, you know, guests there, we, there was a security guard, there were, yeah, somewhere some, we said, no, you know what? What really can go wrong? Yep. So when I, when I found out that my dad was there, my sister texted me, automatically I thought, oh, he's there to intimidate us. We're going through family court uh, and he was essentially saying, right, when it comes to custody issues, I'm not, uh, um, you know, I'm not shying away from that. I want... I want more custody when it comes to property settlement. I've essentially paid for this house, so uh, you know you should all stay with me. So there was all those sorts of arguments that were put forward. All ways to continue the abuse. People find ways through the court system, through any way they can, to continue to abuse, uh-huh. don't they? They do. They do. That's right. So you, you leave the house. That's not. It's not enough to stop the abuse. These perpetrators find ways to essentially get at you, and and that's where my mind automatically went. I thought, oh, he's doing this to intimidate us. So we shy away from our position in terms of, okay, well, we don't want 50% of the property, you know, we don't want any of the property. Or when it comes to uh, custody issues for my younger sister, okay, well, then, you know, we can probably rearrange it so that uh, it works out better for you. So, you know, that's the thing that sort of uh, popped into my head. I told my sister, I said, uh, call me, let me know if any issues, uh, if there is anything, you know, uh, worst case scenario, if there is something serious, then I can, you know, I can come back. If you guys want to come home early, I can come back and pick you up. And she said, no, you know what, 
security guard knows our issue. We've asked for an escort at the end of the night. So as long as that happens, I think we'll be fine. Younger sister and I, we had dinner, uh, watched some TV. We both went to bed. Uh, and I was, I was asleep. And I think it would have been like, uh, just after 11 o'clock, I get woken up to a phone call. And it's my sister's friend. And the words that are coming out of her mouth are essentially, come down quick, your dad has just stabbed your mum. In the next episode of Australian True Crime, our guest Aman Abrimzadeh tells us what happened after the night his father stabbed his mother in front of hundreds of people at the Adelaide Exhibition Centre during the Persian New Year celebrations. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 1396 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.